Hey guys, a warning that there is some explicit language in parts of this episode. Production and audio editing brought to you by Richard Borger with Meraki Recordings. When I ate a cherry off a tree for the first time, that experience was incredible. Um, you know, as I spat out the pip and realized what I'd already known, but you know, having a very sensual um, visual confirmation that the coffee bean is actually just the pip of the cherry, right? And then started investing time and energy into understanding things like African beds, um, you know, fermentation, all that kind of thing. I realized there was so much to coffee. So that's when I came back with a in the early days of British settlement of Australia, tea was the main household brew. It wasn't until 1928 when the first espresso machine was introduced to Melbourne at Cafe Florentino, the predecessor to Grossi Florentino, who we speak with in a former episode. Increasing Italian and Greek immigration post-World War II brought a thirst for espresso that had coffee infiltrate Australian society. Now, Melbourne is world-renowned for its specialty coffee shops. Today, we sit with Salvatore Malatesta, who is credited with being at the forefront of specialty coffee in Melbourne. He shares with us the journey that led to his passion, the catch-22 of coffee costs and labor conditions, and Melbourne's coffee evolution over time. Stay with us as we learn how the past and the future of Melbourne is shaped by coffee. Welcome to Culture and Cuisine, the podcast, season two, where we are creating conversations in the Melbourne community to show that everybody is from somewhere. Even the locals of today are shaped by the foreigners of the past. And with that, we can begin to understand and appreciate the diversity around us. I'm your host, Casey Hirschman. Sharing the table today is Salvatore Malatesta, founder and creative director of St. Ali Coffee. My name is Salvatore Malatesta. And my in-the-field co-host, Lila Fournier. I am Lila Fournier, the co-host today. Salvatore begins by sharing the inspiration behind his passion for specialty coffee. I mean, coffee's been natural for me, right? Like, I'm Italian and we drank coffee all the time and it was a ceremony and people... My mum had multiple stovetops from 2, 4, 6, 20. People came over. Coffee was on all the time. The smell of coffee was always near, so it was very natural for me to gravitate towards coffee. Uh, I was in coffee for a long, long time, like 25 years long time. And whilst I thought I was, and I was a barista, and whilst I thought I was making delicious coffee and I focused on a whole bunch of things that at the time were considered important, um, it wasn't until probably 15 years ago that I thought there was something much more to coffee that I quite didn't understand. In fact, I used to teach coffee classes uh, 12 years ago and often I would ask people where coffee came from and uh, n- no one ever said a tree or a cherry mm. whereas you know when I ask people now at least half the audience will say a coffee cherry a tree so um, I decided that I would embark on a um, in hindsight rather preposterous and, and risque uh, tour where I just 
left the shores of Melbourne and went to South America mm-hmm. with no plan or uh, any um, appointments. And I started with an easy entree country. So I went to Panama and I rocked up to Hacienda Esmeralda, which is one of the most famous geisha farms in the world, and knocked on their front door. And the Petersons were very lovely to me, Americans, and they hosted me for a Sunday lunch. This interaction led to introductions to people like Francesco Saracen, son of Don Pachi, whom brought the geisha coffee to Panama which in turn led to more and more contacts and connections for Salvatore until he started his own direct trade origin business. Salvatore shares how his time in Central and South America shaped and enlivened his vision for Melbourne. I realized there was so much to coffee. So that's when I came back with a vengeance to Melbourne and decided to be very evangelical. Um, about the work that we did and the reason for that was I was a bit frustrated back then that people would when you ask them what coffee they drank they would often say a brand mm. so that you know if you said so what coffee do you drink people say oh I drink you know XYZ proprietary limited and that didn't make any sense to me because now when you ask people what coffee they drink um, in the coffee circles at least they say oh I love Costa Ricans or Kenyans or you know, like fruit bombs or naturals or washed or whatever. That, so yeah. when you say um, to someone, what wine do you drink? They don't say Penfolds. <laughs> they say, well, I love Chablis or you know, Shiraz or whatever. Salvatore transitions into explaining the role of direct trade buyers in the coffee business and what it took to introduce Melbourne to the concept. Also, um, you know, coffee is a commodity, so it's traded on the exchanges and the C price, which is the price um, that coffee's traded at, <coughs> uh, is um, uh, often very low um, and often below the cost of production. So, um, you know, direct trade buyers tend to or should do or want to aspirationally pay the farmers you know two or three times the sea price or something like that and um, we've got relationship with the farmers for 10 12 years now that we've been buying from and so the mentality back then was buy higher charge higher and celebrate the the farm work and so I guess the message that I was spreading back then was that we're the custodians mm-hmm. of the farmers work I went on a um, you know PR bender because what I was I said to my guys at the time, there is not much of a market for the work that we do. Mm-hmm. So we have to educate the market for the work that we do. Mm-hmm. And we need to explain why we're more expensive and so forth. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so one of the, I guess, ways of doing that was importing a very expensive uh, geisha coffee mm-hmm. <coughs> and charging a lot of money for it. I can't remember whether it was $50 or $25 or something per cup, which... Um, when the press got hold of that, they uh, they went crazy. And, um, so was it difficult to explain <clears throat> at the time to the customers? No, ironically, we hit a nerve. So we sold out of that coffee. Wow. And there's a radio station here called Triple M, and the host of that radio station is a guy called Eddie Maguire, who's now a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And I was called into that radio station, and he said, um, you know, essentially, uh, you're a wanker. Not, <laughs> not quite, but, you know. <clears throat> and I um, asked him what... what um, whether he drank local um, sparkling or champagne. And he mm-hmm. said, champagne. I said, well, you're a wanker. You know, <laughs> I mean, what's wrong with local sparkling, right? Yeah. So, um, and so, you know, that story got syndicated. It went national. And then a couple of crazy things happened. BuzzFeed 
picked it up and I became and I became the number one most pretentious thing on BuzzFeed. <laughs> <clears throat> and that was, you know, at the time I didn't even know what BuzzFeed was and I'm not even sure that was good. I was just like, oh, that's cool. You know, and I think below me was Sting, you know, so um <laughs> to give you an idea of, you know. So then I, without realising, I realised we were on this sort of like um, wave mm-hmm. um, and so we surfed it pretty pretty meanly and pretty seriously and we became the specialty coffee pioneers of Melbourne right that's how it sort of happened yeah um, and why did you choose Latin America and not Africa for example at this time <clears throat> uh, because the it was the geisha was from Panama and it was the most prized coffee at the time mm-hmm. and um And it's a delicious coffee. Like, I don't know what, what you drank this morning. That's a mm-hmm. Colombian geisha. Uh, But um, the, mm-hmm. back then it was Panama was all, you know. So that varietal has now been transported and grown everywhere. But at the time, you know, it was a Panama thing. Um, I actually, you know, people ask me what coffee I like the most. And, um, <clears throat> you know, with coffee, it's like, like with most of these things, it's the feeling that you get. Mm-hmm. Um, right? It's a feeling, right? Yeah. So... I don't think you can beat an African feeling. Like when you land in Kenya or Ethiopia, the soil smells differently, the soil is a different color. It's you know, confronting for the senses. And so when you drink a Kenyan coffee, <coughs> it transports you back. So, you know, if, I, if you force me into a corner and I could only drink one region for the rest of my life, I'd probably say Kenyan, but that wouldn't be fair or right because, I mean, there are so many delicious coffees through South America. And even the, you know, big growers like Brazil and Colombia, which, you know, in the specialty space, a lot of people aren't as excited by them because they're, you know, large growers like Brazil, I think is still the probably the largest growing region in the world. They can make beautiful coffees though. Um, so the specialty craft guys are always looking for the hard ones to get to, like Bolivia, you know, that only grows, you know, a handful of bags a year or, um, you know, uh, Burundi, which is hard to get to or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what you learn is that <clears throat> that the it's the soil does actually produce a very different coffee but what you also learn which is a sad reality of coffee is that um the farmers and and not all the farmers because some of the farmers particularly in places like brazil are very wealthy but the you know standalone farmers are quite not wealthy um but even worse the pickers um their their work is really fucking hard yeah. um and it's at altitude um it's heavy Uh, and it's really, really poorly paid. Um, so do you still work with the same farmers yeah. than at the beginning? Yeah. 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 So, and that's the, and that's the, be- I mean, when we go back now, it's like seeing family, right? And you, the kids have grown up and they've got a new dog and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Because the, what I'm saying is like, um, <clears throat> I used to say back then, and now we've got a two full-time green bean buyers. Mm-hmm. I haven't been to an origin for three or four years. Um, but back then, the things I looked for were happy pickers. So if the pickers were happy because they're, The pickers were generally indigenous, um, and if they looked happy and clean and well-fed and the kids were smiling, that means the farm, farming practices were nice. Mm-hmm. The fermentation tanks, so if they were clean, um, if they had African beds, um, drying beds, mm-hmm. and those things were all indications that the farm was reinvesting, mm-hmm. and rather than, and, and, and so people could tell you whatever story they want, but you can see it on people's faces. If mm-hmm. the pickers looked sad and the tanks were dirty and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, and as you know, lots of blogs and Instagram pages on coffee dogs and coffee kids. So, you know, we see happy coffee dogs, for example. Uh-huh. If the dogs are being fed, then the pickers are being fed and so on and so on. So, but it's still, I mean, it's still <clears throat> yeah, very sad. It's, it's hard to, um, to work with another country where um, 
the employees can be treated differently from our Western countries. Correct. So and it's and it's not. I mean, I'd be lying to you if I said to you it's improved. I don't think it's improved at all. In mm -hmm. fact, I think that coffee is currently trading below the cost of production. So, mm -hmm. um, despite all the noise that um, people like ourselves have made, um, and there's lots of good companies in the world that are pushing the specialty message and mm -hmm. farm gate price, it's still pretty bad. And, um, and I guess I hate to make this comparison, but this is a sad reality of coffee, and I don't know if it's what you want to hear, but it's a bit like apparel. I mean, we all like buying sneakers for you know, a couple hundred bucks, but uh, I can, you know, the reason why they're only a couple hundred bucks rather than 800 bucks is because someone's not getting paid very much at the cost of production, right? Yeah. Um, and that's sad reality of first, third world exploitation. So do you think it's a problem of the big companies, or do you think it's uh, in those countries that they have to improve the work policy? Uh, well, I think it's a problem with capitalism, actually. I mean, I mean, really, coffee should be $8. No one's going to pay $8. So then, you know, people squeezing all the, way, all the way down to the value chain and the farmers are the ones that get fucked the most. Yeah. Um, and they're also susceptible to um, the environment. I mean, if they have a bad yeah. season um, or um, they have... Uh, a bacteria uh, yeah. uh, shuts down the crop. I mean, they're kind of like it's a tough. It's a tough gig. Yeah. I, like I wouldn't want to be a coffee farmer right. um, unless I was a Brazilian cartel, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and like the to paint the picture for people that don't know my my understanding and educate me. It's like typically on maybe like a hillside, like very hard. You're it's very the crop's very low to the ground. Or yeah, no. So it's uh, no the no the low to the ground is tea. Uh, coffee oh, okay. co coffee can grow. You know, I mean. What, what you want to, on a well-managed farm, you don't let the coffee trees grow too high because that makes it really difficult. You keep them at a, you know, uh, you um, umbrella them. Um, mm -hmm. But no, but you're carrying, I can't remember, I think it's 10 or 20 kilo boxes mm -hmm. at altitude and you're getting paid something like $2 a box or something, mm -hmm. right? So you're picking coffee, walking all the way down to the uh, truck, emptying it, walking all the way back up. It's not fun and, yeah. it's, and it's a short season. So you're not getting paid very much and for a very short period of time. Um, you know, our green bean by Lucy has her, her ethical focus has been on women collectives. So there are three farms that we support um, that uh, in one farm in particular employs exclusively women, you know, empowers women. Um, you know, you've got to pick a cause, so that's her cause. There are lots of causes, um, and that's a cause she's gone down to. The woman farmer is Aida Batale, and I'll get that spelling for you. Um, I'll spell it for this it's A I D A. B A T L L E. Coffee farming um, has its really share well, of like, issues. And that's when transformation happens. Coffee farming has its share of issues, but it also has so many intriguing aspects as well. Salvatore shares with us the exciting things happening with coffee today. The exciting face of coffee is that um, people are investing now in experimental farms that are trying to discover lost heirloom varietals so mm -hmm. this morning i was very fortunate i had a guy from columbia come in it was a good morning actually he was here sorry okay yeah to the coffee we we're drinking so he, yeah. br he brought in this coffee um which is the um i can't pronounce that it's eugeniotis or something um e-u-g-e-n-i-o-i-d-s eugeniotis I can't pronounce it either, but uh, I'm in the limited Spanish that I have. This is Ancestral Materno de los Café Arabica, so it's the Ancestral Mother of the Arabica Coffee. Oh, 
which is pretty fucking cool. I've never yeah. seen it. I've never seen it before. Yeah, and the beans were so small, they were like um, like ants, you know, like mm-hmm. you know, like bull ants or tiny, which I've never seen wow. that before. So you know, again, I'm mean, in a bean coffee my whole life, and I see these beans this morning. I'm like, wow, that's cool. Yeah. And it's exciting because, um, uh, you know, without sounding too pretentious or wanky, it's a portal into um, particular parts of the world mm-hmm. um, that you can only really experience through, I think, through, you know, being there or food. So mm-hmm. even like cheese, I mean, all this sort of stuff, if you're eating a, a French cheese from um, a particular region and you've had it before, it transports you there, right? Although later to the game, Melbourne is now world-renowned for its specialty coffee. Salvatore explains that transition and some of the reasons why he thinks it occurred. I think Melbourne, um, and, and I don't know why, okay, because Intelligentsia, Stumptown, your country, back in the day, um, Jeff Watts, Dwayne Saracen, they started the sort of direct trade movement in a proper way. They should have... Um, they should have... Uh, America should have... America should have been at the forefront of specialty coffee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just didn't. It was picked up in small areas, San Francisco, Chicago, yeah. um, Seattle, Seattle <laughs> um, Portland, whatever. But, you know, it wasn't a countrywide phenomenon. Melbourne, um, I reckon we were probably five years behind, but then we made so much noise about it that everybody became um, so obsessed by coffee yeah. that now globally we're, we're associated with the coffee renaissance. Yeah. So, like, do you know, what do you think caused that? Do you have no, any insight? Just and, <laughs> and, I, you know, if you go to Singapore, Malaysia, or there'll be cafes called mm. Flinders Lane and Little Collins and mm. My Little Melbourne and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And the one thing that we did do different to the Americans, which I think we can take full credit for, we kind of invented, in a way, brunch. Mm. But what we invented was, you know, delicious coffee and delicious food in one venue. Mm. So even when I was traveling the States, I used to go to the Origins and End User all the time. I travel all the time. I wanted to see what was going on, you know. So mm-hmm. I'd go to America and I'd go to a cafe in Chicago like La Lune mm-hmm. and the food was delicious and the coffee was, you know, it was okay. Yeah. You know, or I'd go and get really good coffee at some town and the only offers was, the only coffee, early food on offer was donuts. I'm like, yeah. I don't want a fucking donut. Yeah. <laughs> I want food. You know, that kind of thing. And Americans still haven't done the coffee and food together. They've done okay. coffee or food, but not together, right? So we did the food and even here at Sonali, I mean, you know, if I look back, 14 years ago, we were doing toasted pide bread um, kind of food. And mm-hmm. now you can have a cibiche and a you know, lobster roll or something. Mm-hmm. So we're like a restaurant in a cafe environment, right? Although St. Ali was at the forefront of specialty coffee in Melbourne and well-renowned nationally for its success and innovation, Salvatore acknowledges the saturation in the current market and what it means for specialty coffee shops today. Um, I wouldn't start a specialty coffee business today. Mm. I think it's way too hard. Mm. Um, because there's so many. And, and customers, I mean, I don't know how old you guys are, but customers can't tell the difference between Starbucks and us. I mean, because there's so much noise, you know. Uh, Costa Rican, um, you know, uh, Herbazoo, uh, Finca de la Santa Maria, or something like that, everywhere. And when we were talking about origins, I mean, people were talking about Lavazza, Ili, you know, and we were talking about Costa Rican coffees, right? So, um, and if you look at the, if you look at um, Starbucks Reserve, which is a phenomenal product, right? I mean, it's a, have you been to one? I mean, it's it's fuck off amazing. Right? I have mm-hmm. to say it on record. It's um, you know they opened up something called Fifty Second Street in San Fran as a stealth project years ago, so no one knew it was Starbucks. It looked like Sonali, and you, I walked into it and uh, I was like, fuck, this is cool. 
and then I was like, hang on, it looks a bit weird, looks a bit, weird, a bit not cool. There was something about it that wasn't quite right, and then I realised it was a Starbucks. I've been doing the research for 13 years. Yeah. The Starbucks Reserve, I mean, they're Willy Wonka factories. Will they have longevity? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But they've got a beautiful roaster, Probat, German, old barrel, in the centre of the venue, mm-hmm. um, and all the copper piping that goes with it, right? Mm-hmm. They've got 100 staff like an Apple store. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, um, everywhere you look, someone's giving guidance on broad method or, mm-hmm. you know, ceramics or whatever. Um, the one in Milan that I just came back from was Italian craftsmanship. It was a really beautiful, like a tear to my eye, beautiful, um, all stonework, copper, gorgeous. Um, I didn't taste the coffee because I didn't need to, but like, I don't know if the coffee's good, but the, so as a, as a punter or as a new person to coffee or as a young kid or as a, you know, Chinese national, that's cool, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so how do we make noise? You know, how do we make noise? Yeah. And so we've taken a different angle. And we've made noise by um, setting up a fashion brand um, mm-hmm. and apparel brand called Studio Ali, S-T-U-D-I-O.Ali. Mm-hmm. Um, it does all our merch and it does things like this. So we made the front cover of the you know, Japanese um, design mag. I used to get coffee samples on my desk and now I get um, you know, um, you know, merch samples. You know. Even with a bustling business and a launching fashion line, Salvatore still sees the value in taking time to travel, the only other hobby he has, according to himself. Every eight weeks, he tries to get away from his desk and experience the world. Here's what he has to say about understanding culture and the access coffee provides inside of that. So when you start unlocking cultures, you start unlocking, you have the keys to unlocking a whole bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. The good thing about coffee is that it's a unifier. Um, like wine isn't a unifier because Muslims don't drink. So if you go to, you know, I was hosting a, um, a guy called Sahim Althani, who's a Shiga Qatar, he doesn't drink. So of course, you know, clumsily I was drinking and then I realized he wasn't drinking. So I thought, hmm, sorry about that. Um, but coffee, everyone drinks coffee. You know, uh, the fundamentalist drink coffee, the Christians drink coffee, everyone drinks coffee. So it's a really good starting point. Um, and, you know, it's got serious DNA and tradition for conversation. And you know, Voltaire drank coffee. Um, you know, the church, the Pope, got, Pope Clement got involved in the coffee battle in 1570 about whether coffee was a devil, or a drink of the devil, or whether it was, you know, legit or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So coffee is very powerful. Um, and and let's not forget it's a drug and it is a drug independence. I mean, if you're a coffee drinker and you stop drinking, you get a headache. And if you're a heavy drinker, you get nauseous and you get sick, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a good starting point. And everybody everybody who can taste anything can tell you what they're tasting in a cup, which, by the way, if you, you know, we should get some coffee for you in a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So for me, like, my favorite country outside of the West that does coffee is Japan. Um, but but I think I think they do everything well, um, and I'm really jealous of the way they do everything well. You know, if you buy an apple, they wrap it perfectly. You know, but it's it's a fascinating culture anyway because yeah. it's so different from ours. It is, but they're so committed to perfection. Yeah. Um, in a way that no one else in the world is. I and mean, also, I think it's really interesting because they mix modern and traditional. All the time. All the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does come with its own problems. There are a lot of unhappy salary men, as I call them, in Japan. But, um, you know, whenever I've eaten in Japan, I think it's got the best food in the world. You know, they'll do French better than the French. They'll do Italian better than Italian. They'll do, you know... So they do coffee really committed. And Muriyama, who's one of the, you know, famous buyers of coffee around the world, his palates are phenomenal. Um, Korea's exciting. It's still behind Japan. Um, but it's growing. But it's growing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and in the Western world, I mean, I don't know, places like France have so much scope because, you know, in Paris, I've still only got a handful of cafes committed to specialty coffee. In Italy, I think you've only got Francesco Sanopa and uh, one more Gardelli. You know, these are these are massive countries with a couple of people. Like the, I feel like it's us here 20 years ago, you know, like yeah. there was only three of us and now there's three million people. Yeah, so I have a question too, because you open a location in where in Indonesia or somewhere. Yeah, so we've opened venues. Our international forays have been one in London in 2010, okay. and one in uh, two, three in, in Jakarta now in mm-hmm. Indonesia, um, and we sell coffee to LA to customers. Mm-hmm. Um, Curtis Stone is the chef, straight chef. Mm-hmm. Um, what are my learnings from Jakarta? Um, is uh, Indonesia is Islamic country? and they drink a lot of coffee um, and it's fucking hot so I drink a lot of cold coffee um, and uh, all those uh, third world countries with a growing middle class um, have you know uh, first world aspirations so coffee is one of those easy to understand first world aspirations I mean Starbucks is something dumb like $12 a cup or something in Shanghai uh, as an example um, you know uh, right um, but if you follow the luxury curves um, which is an interesting thing to do as well. Um, LVMH, as in Louis Vuitton, Melbourne, Hennessy, L Capital, they're, you know, out of Louis Vuitton, the $15 billion revenue uh, per annum, something like 50% comes from China. Um, right. So, um, but what, what's interesting to watch, I think, is that's why I think coffee is in a special place. I mean, if you, the West doesn't buy luxury goods anymore. I mean, they do, but not really, right? I mean, when's the last time you guys bought a, a luxury item? <laughs> Long time ago. Long time ago. <laughs> but I mean, you wouldn't save for one, right? Like, it's just yeah. not where you, it's not, I, I don't think it's where you, you like save for travel or experiences right. now more than. So we're consumerists now, right? So mm-hmm. we're like travel, so we want to spend our money on food or out mm-hmm. wine or travel, or, but we wouldn't go and spend you know, $7,000 on a bag or something, right? People still do, but not really. But the Chinese were doing it very aggressively, um, and now they've stopped doing it. So their ma- wealth maturation has mm-hmm. sped up. So it normally takes 50 year cycle for people to stop spending money on, on mm. those kind of luxury items. And the Chinese are like, no, nah, this is boring. I've got so many bags in my cupboard, I want to do something else. If we have a special release of a coffee mm-hmm. um, that's at an expensive price point and it sells out, because um, mm-hmm. people are obsessed by, you know, um, people are obsessed by spending money on luxury. Uh, it's an interesting phenomenon to watch because it's either you've got H&M or Zara at one end, or you've got you know Goyard at the other end, and everything in between is dying. And that's same same with uh, everything actually. So mm-hmm. even food and beverage, I mean, it's either ten dollar cheap eats or you know Vudemond thousand dollar head experiences. After getting into some political discussions about the vanishing middle class, we transition back to Saint Ali and ask Salvatore why he chose South Melbourne as the location for his first coffee shop. Yeah, yeah. So. Do you know where we are in relation to the GPO? No, so the GPO is what you often, general post office is what you're often associate with the centre of a city, right? Mm. Or the church or mm. um, the square or whatever. Mm. The GPO is about 900 metres away. Mm. Um, the Crown Casino development's about 300 metres away. You can see it actually. Uh, I can't identify it there, but it's there. Um, and I think of South Melbourne as the greater CBD. I always did, right? Like yeah. I was like, it's so close to everything. So I've yeah. got the beach that way. Sorry, the beach that way, city that way. And I don't understand why South Melbourne hasn't developed. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. It's like the best city, best suburb in Melbourne. Um, like Fitzroy is really cool, 
but it's an industrial area. It's like Williamsburg. Um, you know, uh, South Melbourne has the beach. It actually has its own beach. It's also got Albert Park. Like, it's got the Botanic Gardens are like 1.3 k's that way. They're the, they're the lungs of the city. So, you know, Grand Central or something. Mm-hmm. Not Grand Central, Central Park. Um, it has all the markings of a suburb that should be cool, and it just wasn't cool. And when we um, came in here, if you look at 14. 14. Over here is um, what you refer to as a projects uh-huh. and what we refer to as commission flats. So um, government housing. Um, and it's still there, right? And it's and they're pretty rough. Um, and I would come to work in syringes and spaggies and you know, all that kind of stuff. I don't know how they've got rid of them because the projects are still there, but we don't have those anymore. Uh-huh. So it's just a matter of time. Um, and to me, I don't know whether it's a year or 10 but I think it will be the core suburb in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that we need to happen is landlords who have held the property for years need to die um, mm-hmm. because they just hold on to them and don't do anything with them. Look, there was a property over here that was empty for three years mm-hmm. and the guy owns like, you know, 100 properties, so he just keeps them empty. Um, that's just bad thinking. Besides location, atmosphere is one of the other crucial elements of a cafe's success. We ask Salvatore to share how St. Ali has achieved such a welcoming, cool vibe. Because my roots are in hospitality, um, not so much coffee roasting. You know, I, I was a restaurateur, um, and so, and that's, that is probably a, a big difference between myself and other, especially coffee roasters in Melbourne. I didn't start as a roaster, I started as a restaurateur. And, um, what's the job of a restaurateur? I mean, restaurateurs are also dead species, they no longer exist, but the, mm-hmm. um, which is also very sad. Um, but the point of a restaurateur is to make you feel like you're in their home. Mm-hmm. It's, it's genuine hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of a restaurateur is gone because restaurants are now owned by groups and banks and, you know, the often, well not often, always, if you eat the best foods, always buy the, when you have a restaurateur and a chef partnership, mm-hmm. independent restaurant, best food, right? The restaurant cares, and the chef cares. Like Mini Mishima, best Japanese food in Australia. Um, if you can get a booking, go. Uh, Mini Mishima is a chef. I forget the guy's name is the front man. Um, they care. Right? Mm-hmm. Now everything's owned by you know uh, famous chefs and groups and banks and shit like that, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I always try to make anyone who comes into my venue when I'm running it feel like they are the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so what I always say, we're trying to create a rock and roll experience um, for customers um, and if and and therefore if the Rolling Stones were coming to Melbourne for a day they would come to us right and I finished that quote with saying we haven't had the Rolling Stones but we have had Tarantino um, and that was That's cool. amazing. Yeah I know and, uh, and I fucking wasn't here for it but I had every staff he's member. He's rock and roll. He's genuine rock and roll right like he's, he's probably even cooler and he, he sent me uh, all my staff had photos with him they all sent me photos I was overseas I was like fuck He's like my inner hero, yeah. and uh, he was really excited. Although he had coffee, like Americans, he had cream, uh-huh. and I was like, "Oh my god!" Cream. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but um, and so that's what I've tried to create, right? and, and hopefully, and it's hard. As, and as you as you get bigger, mm-hmm. and this is a I've read a psychological report, um, psychological say tribes can survive up to about 120, and then above 120, they need another you know, alpha ape to run the next tribe because mm-hmm. they start falling apart. And we're about 280 or something now, staff, and it gets harder to touch people um, in a way and get them to, you know, so the idea for me is to keep recruiting Matt, this guy's been with me 10 years, um, 
and keep them for 10 years, younger guys who start at 20, and then they hopefully inspire the same. Um, that's the harder part as you grow. So you, you also said that you started with your, um, well, you went to Latin America with your, at this time, girlfriend and now wife. Mm -hmm. um, she's here, by the way. She's oh. also part of the business. Like, is it a yeah. family business? She now? is. I wonder where she is. Let me just see. She's meant to be here with my baby. Oh, um, okay. Do you want to meet my baby? My family baby. picture, yes. <laughs> Let's do a family picture. Love that. Do you hope they're going to um, keep the business? What I would like them to do is um, you know, go off and do whatever they want to do and then come back and take on different things. And hopefully mm -hmm. if they do come back, we'll do the hotel. Mm -hmm. I'm not obsessed by making any more money. You know, like mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of like just really happy. So yeah. if um, if someone could promise me that everything runs smoothly, I'd fuck off now. And have some, <laughs> I mean, I've done a lot. I'm, I'm done a hundred years of labor. Uh, I was working <laughs> seven days a week for a very long time. Yeah. Um, I'd like the idea of the kids taking over. Um, and I think with them, they're all cool, smart kids. They should be able to do something. But if they decide, I don't know. My, my, my boy's a gymnast, for example. There's no money in gymnast, gymnastics. It's probably the least paid sport in the world. <laughs> um, but he's an excellent gymnast. Great. You never know. Maybe yeah. he's going to make money or maybe he's just going to be happy with it. Mm. And that's the secret. So I think the secret, because, you know, the, the, the money game, mm -hmm. um, uh, the business game, it's kind of dumb because mm -hmm. um, I always say there's always someone with a bigger boat. Mm -hmm. I mean, you need yeah. to survive for sure, but at the same time, I feel like if you feel accomplished, it's not just by money, it's more, I don't know, if you feel secure in your own body and your, in your own dreams, passion. But that's, a, um, that's an epiphanal moment, that's a, mm -hmm. an enlightened um, perspective, and mm -hmm. we're unfortunately um, bombarded with, you know, um, success equals, you know, Ferrari or something. Mm -hmm. So. Um, what you said is what I've experienced. It's taken me you know, 10 years to work out. Um, oh no, it's my baby. <laughs>